and you'll be amazed how many times those conversations the person who's asked the question goes oh you know this is what i grew up with or this is what i live through and they just start sharing because they know they're in a safe environment they know they're they've got friendly ears to talk to and sometimes those people have never talked about those experiences and when they're able to talk about that then they they release the energy of that and I know it's hard to imagine for people that haven't been around this stuff but the victims the people who've experienced violence often carry a lot of shame and and the kids take responsibility for that it's which is we know standing at a distance that's that's nuts the kids in no way ask for that to happen to them but they do they seem to take on this burden of the responsibility and that can sit with people throughout their lifetime until they have the chance to release it and we are creating this incredible it's simple but highly highly safe environment for people to let go of that energy um, and liberate themselves from that shame and the pain Welcome to the RMA podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Nicole Bunyan, founder of Running Mums Australia. Each episode, I will be speaking to everyday women who have an inspiring story to tell. We will cover the highs and lows of their own journey, the impact motherhood has had on their life, and how running has inspired them to live wilder, dream bigger, and change the world around them. Thank you for joining us on this new adventure that will hopefully leave an imprint for you to live out your own life inspired to conquer goals you never thought possible. everyone welcome back to the RMA podcast this is our second episode in where we're talking about family violence and this episode I'll be speaking to co-founder of Run Against Violence Kiralee Deer we'll talk to Kiralee about the beginnings of Run Against Violence when Kiralee participated in an ultra marathon called the White Ribbon Ultra Marathon in 2014 That run was held over 12 days and it was an 860-kilometre journey throughout regional New South Wales, which aimed to raise awareness about intimate partner violence and its impact on the community. After this, a documentary called Iceberg was made about her experience and that became the launch pad for the growth of the Run Against Violence organisation. Run Against Violence is an awareness campaign that exists to provide awareness against family violence and how we can best support people in our community and give a voice to those people that have suffered or endured family violence. I talked to Kiralee about her experience running both the big ultra marathons that she ran in participation with Run Against Violence, and also how this has evolved to the virtual events that we see today, that so many of you are participating in right now around Australia. I talked to Kiralee about what she loves about ultra running, 
we talk about the highs and lows of completing these journeys and also what she's learned about herself along the way. I really enjoyed this conversation. Please head to runagainstviolence.com to find out more about Run Against Violence and how you can get involved. I look forward to sharing this journey with you with Kiralee Deer. Hi, Kiralee. Welcome to the RMA podcast. Thank you and ha- thanks for having me. I really wanted to get you on the podcast, Kiralee, for a few different reasons. Um, one is because as a runner myself over the last, you know, I don't know, seven or so years since I've been part of the running community in Sydney. Um, your name is constantly mentioned um, for all the amazing work that you do within the running community, but also you've been an inspiration, I guess, to me as a runner and an ultra runner um, in just following along your journey, not only personally, but just the cause behind why you run. Um, and I wanted to get you on specifically because this week um, we start the Run Against Violence campaign again for 2020. And I thought, what a great idea to have you on the podcast to talk about how that became a reality, what that does for people, and um, I guess the journey there. So thanks for joining us today. Um, And, you know, do you want to just quickly tell people like um, how like it's looking this week? And before we get back into the whole, you know, nitty gritty of where we, how we got to this moment. Um, how's it looking for you this week leading up to the start of Run Against Violence 2020? Yeah, so this is the, the third edition of the Run Against Violence virtual challenge. And this week, the week before we kick off is known as absolute mayhem week. <laughs> it, um, it's when all the people that are pressure prompted decide to so- sign up and uh, everything that, um, you know, people are trying to bring everything together and it's an exciting, exciting week. It is exhausting. All our eyes are popping out of our heads because we've been flat out at this for six months. It takes to put this together each year. And, uh, but it's incredibly exciting. And we have already doubled the numbers that we had last year participating. So we're incredibly excited about the outcome. And uh, we get caught up in everyone else's energy around it. So all the teams are, are starting to post up their team photos and people are talking about their excitement. So, yeah, we share in that excitement as a, the team of volunteers behind it. So it's a, a wonderful week. I have written on my uh, weekly plan this week is enjoy it is the Mm -hmm. most important thing this week is actually remember that in all the mayhem that it's about enjoying what we're achieving, the difference we're making to the world, all the wonderful people coming together to make that happen and and really savouring that experience as it goes through. Mm, Absolutely. And it's been such a really beautiful journey to watch it start from, I'm lucky to have seen it start from the very beginning um, back in 2014 and we will get into that, but it's been really nice to watch it evolve year after year into what's become a yearly thing that everybody, you know, really gets behind and looks forward to um, and really takes on, I guess, a little piece of the story behind Run Against Violence into their own world and their own communities and and makes a huge impact. And I've loved seeing how the women in particularly in RMA have got behind it year after year and the lives that have been transformed, the stories that have been shared through it, which is the reason it exists um, to talk about those stories. And 
um, yeah, the impact that it's had. So I'm excited myself to be joining this year again and 2020 is going to be a great year. I've got my team. We've, we've just, it was like a no brainer. It was like, we just got the same team from last year. We're just rolling along every year with the same team, which has been really nice. And I'm really looking forward to kicking off on Sunday. So I've got my, my runs ready. So let's get into a bit of background firstly about you though, as a runner, because none of this would have happened had it not fallen into your spirit and you kind of went with, um, went with it and, and rolled with what, you know, you thought could become, um, this movement. And so let's talk about your background into how you got running as, as a start. Like, you know, were you always a runner? How did you begin running? Um, I, I loved cross country running at school. Um, and I was good at it. So that always helps. Um, but really uh as i hit my late teens and into my 20s i found a thing called university and i found there was other things to do other than running <laughs> and i uh, got pretty distracted from it for roughly about 20 years and then i was about 38 when i decided that i needed to find myself a hobby and uh at that stage I i've had my own business since i was about 29 years old and I had hit that point where I found myself laying on the lounge one Sunday afternoon, glass of red wine, almost permanently attached to my face, mm-hmm. um, lamenting life, just feeling lazy and unwell, stressed, no work-life balance. I'd become, I'm a, I'm a workaholic. I, I really do love to work hard. Um, but I, I also know that I need to, balance that out and I'd found myself in a place where that that balance was completely missing and it was making me really unwell uh, mentally and physically and so my partner at the time he suggested that maybe I needed to find a hobby and I tried a few different things I tried painting and and uh dancing I don't know why that came into my head I'd be any good at that Um, and I'm pretty good at putting one foot in front of the other and that's about it Um, and then again it was another Sunday afternoon that I was laying on the lounge and I remember that I really loved running as a kid and the buzz that that gave me so um, I dove into the bottom of my cupboard found that we very, very clean looking pair of joggers, uh-huh. put them on and ran around the block and then, uh, yeah, collapsed back in a heap on the lounge going, oh my goodness, I think I used to be a bit better at this. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but the bug bit that day and that was the start of it. Mm. I set myself the goal of running 10 kilometres and working out how to, to run 10Ks. And at that stage, I clearly remember thinking how on earth does a human being run a half marathon Mm. no idea how you could possibly put that together those people were superhuman so uh, yeah that's the start of my running career I remember those feelings myself like my first you know 10k or even I think it was like six kilometers a local fun run I thought I was going to die and then I thought oh we'll when I down the track went oh try and do a half marathon I remember doing one of those long runs thinking how will I ever make it how will I ever make it and now in hindsight I mean I can see that along lots of people's journeys when I'm following along but when you become like you just get used to it and then you're training and then you do ultras it's like 
you just think, oh, I can't believe I'm actually, <laughs> I've been there and now I'm here. And it's interesting to see that story unfold throughout people's lives, um, particularly ultra runners. So, so how was it that you went from doing that first 10 kilometers to getting into ultra running? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sheer coincidence, really. Um, I, it was really the discovery of trail running as a sport, um, which I claimed for probably about 24 hours was a sport that I actually invented. Um, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize it had existed as a sport prior to me discovering it. Um, so basically I've, I've been a, a bushwalker my whole life. I, I'm, a, I'm an adventure person. I love getting out into the wilderness and I had just started building up my distances. I had reached my 10 kilometers and we were um, out visiting a friend's property in near the Wadigans. And uh, that day, and most of the time when we'd visit that property, I would go out for a bushwalk and, you know, go walking in the Wadigans, a beautiful part of the world. And that day I'd forgotten my walking boots, but I had my running shoes in my car and I thought, hmm, I wonder if you can run on trails. I wonder what that experience would be like. So I pulled my shoes out of my car and put them on and I ran along the trails and I thought, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And so I uh, headed home and um, I thought, oh, I wonder wonder if people do this as a sport. And I, I I didn't know what to Google. So I was Googling cross country and all these sorts of things. I was going, no, 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 that's not it. Oh, wow. Maybe I've discovered something new here. And eventually my Googling skills improved and I discovered it's called trail running. Um, and then over subsequent weeks, I did the bushwalk over Mount Solitary and I, uh, up in the Blue Mountains and I came back from that and I thought, oh, I wonder if there's people that actually run uh, run trails like Mount Solitary because that would be an amazing thing to run again. And again, started Googling like crazy, came across a thing called Fat Ass World, which was uh, <laughs> a bit you of might a discovery. Need to <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> who am I spending time with here? And um, yeah, so I came and then that led me to um, at that stage was coolrunning.com.au. This is pre Facebook. and uh yeah and discovered that there was a run called the blue labyrinth so i I posted up on cool running and people started to reply and that day um it was really when when the world started to change because i went and did that run and when we turned up to the start line of the run there was this very motley crew of human beings turned up and as you do, you're standing on the, the start line of a run. Everyone's chatting about what they've been doing the last few weeks and all those sorts of things. And they're going, oh, yeah, I did 100K last week and did 50K this week, blah, blah. Like throwing these numbers around like they were normal. And, and I was sitting there with my 16.5K longest run ever under my belt. You <laughs> I was running off into the bush quite a lot to go <laughs> to the loo because I was so nervous. And, uh, and that, that, yeah, that's when life changed is because that group of people who just turned out to be some of Australia's top trail ultra runners, mm-hmm. um, they, they, they normalized what was an extraordinary act. And uh, I managed to do 33 Ks over Mount Solitary that, 
that day. So pulled out, didn't get the 45 in that I wanted. Yeah. Um, but still, it was way beyond what I'd done before. So it's really trail running uh, because it trail, being out in the bush, being out in nature, all those sorts of things really lights me up. Um, so it stopped being about the distances and started being about the adventure. And then also getting in amongst people who normalise those sorts of distances made it not so scary. Um, so they were, the, I'd say, the two most important contributions to where I ended up being. Mm. And not only do they normalise it, they're enablers. <laughs> they're total enablers. <laughs> <laughs> so after a while, you just think it's normal. When you actually think about it, it's not. <laughs> it's just not normal to most people to be going and running these crazy crazy distances I mean, even a half marathon is not normal to most people so mm. the active running ultras or you know over mount solitary even um you know for people that don't know it's quite a difficult run i've done it myself and it's very difficult and yet you went and that was your kind of initiation in yes. trail running <laughs> so what a way to go in <laughs> Yes, and they left me behind after about the first 10 metres. So I was lucky <laughs> I'm confident out in the bush on my own because I did not see anyone else for the rest of that day hardly. So, mm. it uh, yeah, it was quite the initiation. And a few years later, that's um, some of those people in that group, they went on to set up um, Running Wild New South Wales. Mm. And then that's when the Mount Solitary Ultra was was established from that. So, yeah, yeah it's amazing legacy. Yeah. But it's, um, you're exactly right. It's, and now, now that I've done the distances that I have, and it's actually hard to reverse engineer that and go back to uh, what normal, shall mm. we say, um, hashtag normal, <laughs> people uh, yeah, <laughs> think is long distances. Because your mindset shifts, your, your world changes, your, your worldview, your definition of things changes. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is is hard to to go back once you've stepped over into the dark side. <laughs> yeah, true. So uh, we won't go through the whole like journey of all the different races you've done over the last, you know, say twenty years. But when you did that first sort of initiation into trail running, and I guess fat ass is like, I guess it, it's a loose race. Like it's sort of people just come together and they just oh we're going to do this, and you just calmly turn up and you run. Um, what happened after that that made you think, uh, this is for me, ultra running is for me, I want to do these long distances. And, you know, was it initially about pushing yourself and your own goals? And then how did that morph into a bigger picture of, of running, not just for yourself as time went yeah, on? Because I know you've yeah. done races such as Coast to Cozzy and all those longer events that I guess part of it's always about pushing your own boundaries and, and, and reaching your own goals. But was there a time in your life, um, you know, particularly before you even started running against violence that you thought maybe there's something bigger here than just running for me? Yeah. So the, the sequence of events was that from that, um, I guess when I was from that, that first run, when I, when I did the 16 Ks actually, um, so when I'd hit that point to doing my first 100K race, it was about 14 months. And it was through the fat ass movement that I really rapidly increased my distances. So just every few weeks going out and 30Ks became 45, became 75, became 100. 
Um, back then, there wasn't so many um, ultra races as such. And so it was really the fat ass movement that that was the enabler, that was the, the stepping stones to running longer distances. And when you're turning up regularly and talking to nutters that, like I said, throw numbers around like they're <laughs> confetti, um, then, then that change happens pretty rapidly. It was the passion for, I love endurance stuff. I love challenging myself. Um, I love doing what I previously thought was impossible and making that happen. And I loved the oddball nature of ultra back then it um they were all the oddballs coming together um so <laughs> it was my tribe it was my type of my type of community so that was that was um really lovely about it and all that that facilitated me doing my first 100k and uh and doing that at the great north walk 100 then having run the 100k um it was getting close to my 40th birthday and everyone's going, so what are you doing for your 40th? Um, you know, you're having a party, da, 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 all that stuff. Trail going on party. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm a hopeless hostess at my own party. I just spend the whole time stressed. Yeah. And uh, because I want to make sure everyone's having a good time. So I'm looking after them all the time and not actually enjoying my own party. Yeah. And I could see this coming on for my 40th. I said, you know what, I'm going to do something different. I want to do something for my 40th that I'll still be talking about in my 80th birthday. And, and I live near the Great North Walk, um, which is a 262 kilometre trail from Newcastle to Sydney. And uh, so I picked that because also at that stage there had been no women actually run the trail um, so there was no fastest known time for it and so myself and two of my girlfriends who were highly highly experienced trail runners um, I was very novice at that stage we set out for my to celebrate my 40th birthday and we finished um, yeah down in Sydney and celebrated my 40th so we became the first women to run that trail Great. Trailblazing. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. So I was, I'd gone from 100K to 262 on trail. Then in 2013, that's when the game changed pretty drastically for me. And I had started to have thoughts about wanting to run a 500 miler. Don't ask me where the thoughts come from. These, these things come <laughs> <laughs> These things are come to me like epiphanies. They come, they're thoughts out of nowhere. Yeah. And so that was brewing there. And I'm pretty sure it was just because of a, a particular song. <laughs> 500 miles was a good number. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, which is about 800 kilometers. And but also at that time, um, we had a spate of murders in Sydney. There was three women in quick succession that were murdered by their current or former intimate partner. And at that stage in the, in the news cycle, I started to hear the statistic of one woman a week. And I didn't believe it. I thought it was media hype. I thought it was hogwash. And because we're, this is Australia, right? We're a really kind of liberated community. We're pretty chilled out people generally. Um, so I went to do some research on that and found out that it was in fact true. And 
in reality, it was higher. That year, we had 83 women murdered by their current or former intimate partner. And I was in shock. I, um, and then when I also read the statistics, if, if you imagine the murders are just the tiniest, tiniest tip of the iceberg of what is actually going on underneath it, um, the numbers are horrendous. There's hundreds of thousands of domestic violence-related incidents reported to the police every year. And then you can imagine we don't normally go and report these things to police, so the issue gets, gets bigger and bigger as you think about it. Mm. So that was floating around in my head, and I was finding that when I was out running the trails that the face of one of those women, those three women that I, that I had seen, um, the news on kept flashing up into my mind while I was running along and I would find myself in tears. I'd be running along just tears rolling down my face and, my, and it kept happening over, over a period of a few months. And, you know, I know myself well enough that when I'm having that sort of an emotional reaction to something, then it's my intuition telling me I have to do something here. This is, this is a calling. And so I ended up reaching out you know, via a contact, I reached out to White Ribbon um, and I donated those 500 miles to them. I said, look, I've been wanting to do this. Here's 500 miles of running. What do we do to help fix this problem? And that's where it all started. It's interesting to think that, you know, you say that it was a calling and I know myself when things pop up in my head, which have happened to me over the years and they keep popping up and they've just come out of nowhere you know, and when things just all seem to work together and come together, you know, it's meant to be, it's a calling. And obviously you were chosen for this specific calling and look how it's evolved and what impact it's had. So it was meant to be. Um, and I think it was brave of you to answer that calling because I'm sure it was quite scary at the time to think, you know, not only are you going to take on this big challenge of running almost you know, running 800 or so kilometres, but there's real people behind in your mind that, that you know, that this is going to be um, impacting and you're going to be talking about and, and people are going to be watching. And that's scary in itself that, you know, you've put yourself out there um, to do something big and scary and people are going to be watching on. Um, and I'm sure you get the people that are all in your corner and then I'm sure you had some people that weren't in your corner or that thought that that was crazy or why would you want to do that? Um, the naysayers, I guess. Um, did you have that? And how did you respond to that at that time? Yeah. The, the woman that, that took that on is a very different one to the one that's you know sitting in front of you right now. Um, it, uh, I was scared. I really was. I had enormous amount of self-doubt going on. Mm. Um, even on the morning that I started, I, I had a really good cry on the shoulder of my head crewy, um, really worried about what I'd taken on and what that journey was going to be like over those, on that first run, which was 860 kilometres over 12 days. Mm. Um, it was 4.30 in the morning and it was already in the late 30s in terms of temperature and we would hit into the late 40s that day. And, um, yeah, I really thought, who am I to be out talking about this stuff? I'd grown up in a quite a safe environment and, uh, you know, had some relationships that weren't the healthiest, but at, 
it, nothing that I would um, kind of say that that really left me in a in a in a damaged situation or a traumatized situation. Um, and so I just felt, and I wasn't an expert as well. Like I, I didn't, I'm not a social worker. I didn't have any training around that. So I was, I was really concerned about, um, being, being the wrong person mm. to say these things and to be out there promoting awareness around it. So yeah, I had enormous self-doubt. Mm. Um, and I had, yeah, absolutely had the naysayers. There was a, a fair bit of division in the broader community, <laughs> can I put it that tactfully, as to whether I was um, getting a little bit ahead of myself. Um, it was a you know, roughly a 600 kilometre increase on my distance in, in a short period of time. Um, there was, yeah, you always get that mix, don't you? You get the really, the people that just say, go for it, and you get the naysayers. So I really just shut out um, everyone that I felt wasn't in my corner and because I had to, because I really had it. I, I, I was being enough of a self-critic. I didn't yeah. need more criticism on top of that. I just couldn't cope with any more of that. And, but the, the bit that made the difference was the, the people that gathered around me and the quality of the people that gathered around me. And that, that left me speechless um, many a time, just completely um, blown away by those situations bring out the best in humanity mm. and the best people. And yeah, it was just to say it's humbling. It's, it's more than that. It's this sense of deep spiritual connection with, with people that, that really are a good positive energy in this world. So that's, that's what made it happen mm. in terms of a chain of events, you know, to give you a really good example was that, so I contacted White Ribbon. I sent them an email and uh, said, this is what I'm looking to do, donate these 500 miles. Da, 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 da. And I didn't hear back from them for, I think it was about two weeks, maybe three weeks. Because, and of course, during that two weeks, I'm sitting there going, oh, they think I'm a crazy, they think I'm an idiot, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> All the negative conversation was spinning. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then I thought, oh, I have to do the follow-up call just to get closure because I thought, you know, they'll say, no, this isn't something we didn't, we'd uh, get involved in. And so I did make that call and they said, oh, oh, yeah, amazing. We were blown away and we've been spending time trying to work out how, how are we going to use this and make the most of it? We think it's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the reality was very different to the perception from my end. But they then introduced me to the police, New South Wales police, because they had a really great um, relationship with them, partnership with them. And the, the commander that was in charge of domestic violence across New South Wales, um, he phoned me directly and um, we had a chat and he goes, well, I have to get this checked out, make sure we're, we're okay to support this. I have to get permission from you know, his superiors, et cetera, and the various parties involved. And he said, give me a week, give me a week and I'll come back to you with an answer. He phoned me back within 24 hours. He said, yep, we're all on board. Um, and then he put me in contact with a couple of the regional coordinators that just did a phenomenal job um, on putting that event together. Um, so as I say, it's, it makes you feel very, um, very full of the love that exists within our communities when, when people see things are important to do. Mm, absolutely. So that was the start of the White Ribbon Ultra in 2014. So that yep. run went 
for 12 days, 860 kilometres, and it went from Walgut to Forbes in um, regional areas, so in New South Wales. So why did you choose to run in regional New South Wales? What was the reason behind choosing that route? So the route ended up going through three of the top 10 local government areas for domestic related violence. Uh, out in regional areas, out in particularly in remote areas in regional New South Wales, the rate of domestic violence incidents can be up to 11 times higher than they are in metropolitan areas. The, the other aspect of that is that um, we had some really fantastic community action happening out in those areas as well. So not only did they have a significant problem, the community was working very strongly to address those problems. Mm. So I wanted to highlight that as well. And in fact, highlight the solution mm. as much as the problem. So that's, that's really how the route was chosen. And um, so it went from Walgett to Tamworth and then into Forbes. And we finished in Forbes on White Ribbon Day, which is the 25th of November. Mm. Mm. I remember watching you um, because Back when you started this run, it was quite um, well advertised, I guess. Well, I don't know. I just came across it on social media. I can't remember how I heard about it or saw it. Um, I just started RMA only for like a year and I was in Dubbo when I actually have, and this is how funny things come together because when I think about worlds colliding, you know, I didn't know you at all. And I remember you were coming into Dubbo and I'd seen it on Facebook and I was at my sister's house who lives there. And I thought, oh, wow, this woman's amazing. And what she's doing is so amazing. I'm going to go along and support her. And you were coming into the main park there and stopping overnight. And then you were going to be running out of town. So I remember going there and I was so excited to see you run through and we all clapped you in. And then you had a little brief chat with everybody about why you were there and what you were doing and the cause um, and the awareness behind what you were trying to achieve. And then the next, I was so impacted by that, um, that I wanted to go out and run with you the next day out of town. <laughs> so I remember getting up and then finding wherever you were starting and running out of town towards the zoo there somewhere, um, and having a little chat with you. Um, and like, we didn't really exchange much conversation after that for a while, but I do remember that impact that that had on me. I had never really personally dealt with domestic violence or family violence myself. So to me, it was, I guess, something that I really wanted to support. And, and lots of friends of mine had already dealt with that as well. And I thought it was amazing that you were willing to stand up and do something to raise more awareness of that in our country, because we haven't had at that stage enough conversation around family violence and I guess it all starts with conversation and that's where the changes are made so I was really impacted by what you were doing and I was really keen to follow on and then obviously that led to our I guess partnership with you um, over the last you know few years uh, with what you're trying to do with running against violence so so it's really interesting how little worlds collide and what that means and how the impact snowballs I guess from there. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that first run um, and what preparation did you actually have between when you decided to do that 
and when you, you know, had that undertaking. So what kind of preparation did you do in terms of running? <laughs> like uh, For the first run? Yeah. Um, yeah, I overtrained. I definitely oh. overtrained on that first run. That, that's pure nerves. Um, I, I had this thing in my head that I needed to run lots and lots of Ks. But, um, you know, it, it was, I guess, the... The part of that learning curve uh, to um, to go through that that step up, um, and yeah, pure nerves um, was the the training strategy on that one. So yeah, I was doing runs that were 100, 150, 200k's a week type thing. It was it's just way too much stress on my body compared to two thousand seventeen. I averaged sixty eight kilometres um, yeah. a week. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> a little bit of a there were some big runs in there but it was way lower the important thing that I learned um yeah between those two runs is it's more about the backup um so being able to run one day then back up and do it again and that had been part of that strategy in 2014 preparation for 2014 I, I got smarter with it by 2017 mm. so yeah it's all about it's not the the difficult bit is getting out of bed the next morning and doing it again yeah. so yeah run hard get tired then get up and do it again and again and again so I was doing sets of 12 days and doing that mm -hmm. seeing how far I could get through that set seeing how what fell apart and therefore what um what you know I needed to to train more the difference again in between 2014 and 2017 is 2014 I used running to do all of that. Mm. In 2017 I cross-trained. So I was using my bike, I was using all sorts of things to be able to cross-train that fitness and that so I didn't injure myself. It was interesting that that day in Dubbo, as you were talking about, I was remembering one, the heat. Mm. <laughs> I had run from Menindi to not Menindi, um Mendora. Mendoran, yeah, to um, to Dubbo that day. It was it was only forty two k's or something or other, but it was stinking hot and so much roadkill and flies and everything. It was been a pretty tough day. Mm -hmm. There was forty six degrees or something hideous like that. But that after we met in the park, I then went to uh, a physio um, to get a massage and and that sort of thing. And we had um, a yeah, we had some medical experts on the, the phone trying to diagnose what was wrong with my shin. And I'd actually, I had a stress fracture in... In Dubbo. <laughs> yes, in the bottom you of my had, shin. How many kilometres did you have left to drive? <laughs> I still had 250 kilometres to go. Um, the heat and everything else and the, the physio and a few other people were around. They said, you know, there's no shame in pulling out right now um, and mm. stopping. And I talked with uh, only my head crewy Brad um, knew what was going on and we made the decision to keep going um, and my parents had actually met us in Dubbo as well so when we rocked back out of there and the next morning that's what I was carrying and we just kept it a secret till the end mm. it was uh, a rather painful journey and, and high risk if I'd kicked anything with my um, foot uh, such as a, like a cat's eye or a rock or anything on the road then uh, yeah yeah it would have been game over and I would have had a broken shin so mm. it um, yeah it was interesting I always remember Dubbo <laughs> it, just, it just shows always. to you what and it was so so delightful to see your face there and you were so perky and happy and, <laughs> and joyous it really carried me that morning it was amazing oh, <laughs>
while you were dying inside. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's interesting because it just shows that, you know, when you're really passionate about something and you're really passionate about the cause, you almost won't stop at anything, <laughs> like, to get it done. Yes. Um, you obviously, yeah. you have that ultra runner spirit, like, we're not stopping unless we're dying and you're going to get it done. But you know, obviously in the back of your mind was the reason you were doing it. So it wasn't an easy pull. Mm -hmm. You were going to keep going unless it meant you couldn't keep going. Obviously you have to listen to those signs, but I'm glad you did keep going and you, and you made it to the end. Like, you know, and that shows yeah. a lot of resilience and strength on your behalf that you did that. How did you choose who was going to be on your crew for uh, the first run? And also like the second run, like, were they the same? Were they different? Like, how did you choose who you were going to take along with you on that journey? Yeah, look, um, in both times I've had the same head crew, Brad Smithers, and he's a co-founder of Run Against Violence. Um, and so he's been the, the king of logistics and keeping me alive for quite a few years now. Mm. And But the, uh, the rest of the crew has changed each time. And it really is about just who turns up. We put it out there and we ask the volunteers for crew and just see who, who turns up. And each time it has been quite, um, quite a different mix, I guess, in the, the type of people that are attracted to doing that. Um, but both times they have predominantly been people who aren't actually ultra runners. Mm. Um, they, they're connected to the cause in some way or they you know they want they want change to happen so they and they really put themselves on the line it's a tough gig i mean it's hard running a bit but crewing for that distance and under those conditions and with one very grumpy runner at times mm. um it's tough it's really really hard work and i think um again both in both cases the 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 crew that have not had experience with ultra have then experienced it and just you know come to the realization of how tough that is so it's a big thing to put your hand up with we tend to have a core crew that will go the whole distance and that might be sort of three or four people and then other people join um come and go and sort of give that core crew a bit of a rest um as we progress along so yeah yeah it's people that again just blow me away by volunteering that amount of time and annual leave yeah. to be able to come and do these things yeah and one of those um, crew members, so in one of those races, Rebecca, so she was, um, well, she saw your story. I, I watched her on your documentary, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But she shared on that documentary um, her personal story of family violence. Um, are you able to share a little bit about her story and the impact that had, well, on the journey um, did you know about that story before or was that something that she sort of told you as you were out there, but also what impact that had on her watching you run? Mm. So yeah, Rebecca was with me in 2017 and she had heard about what we were doing. Um, so run against violence had been established for uh, say two years by then um, we had the first run and then a documentary called iceberg made out of that first run and that had been shown around so run against violence was getting known a little bit at that stage um, and so when we posted up about the broken hill to sydney run in 2017 and preparation for that uh, yeah rebecca 
contacted us and asked if she could be involved. And she said she'd had some experience with family violence um, and that, you know, so it was a cause close to her heart. And so that's why she wanted to, to be involved. And uh, yeah, it was over the, the course of that relationship and the run that I actually got to understand the full story um, behind what, what Rebecca had lived through. And for her, it was important, I think, as a, well, it's an adventure for her as well, but um, there's a, there was a healing process that was going on for her as well. And her desire was to help other people and, and let the kids know what she'd experienced happened when she was a child. Mm-hmm. And um, she wanted to, other kids that might find themselves in that situation. They want, she wanted them to see that you can be strong, that there is life beyond that experience. And um, yeah, the life does go on. Mm-hmm. And once again, it's that storytelling and that sharing and that awareness um, behind the cause and, and behind the run and, I was really impacted. I was not expecting that <laughs> when I was watching the documentary. I mean, it's funny because the documentary is all about the run against violence. And obviously there are unimaginable things that go on in people's lives um, around family violence. And we won't share her story now because I would really love people to watch the documentary, but I was just, like blown away (laughs) by her story that someone had to endure such heartache um, of someone in their own family. I could only imagine how that would feel and to see her strength and courage and resilience, not only to come alongside and that would have been a hard process for her, even like reliving a lot of that um, history. And while while she shared that experience with others, it showed a lot of strength. I, I just, yeah, I was, I can't, I don't even have words. Like I was really like my mouth was on the floor when she, I had to watch it again. I was just like, I can't believe that that happened to her. Yet she had such strength and courage. And once again, worlds colliding, you know, um, to have someone like her on your team would have brought strength to you as well to have someone that had been through such a thing um, that you're trying to, you know, share awareness about on your team so yeah it was a a beautiful story actually so people should definitely go on and watch steps together ultra marathon how can they view that documentary they can jump on to the run against violence website and uh the the trailers for both documentaries are there iceberg and steps together ultra marathon Mm -hmm. if you'd like to purchase a copy of it you can go into the shop and um they're just five dollars to get a, a downloaded copy of it. Um, yeah, so they're the easiest ways to see it. But also we have screenings within the community. So always keep your eye out um, for, for local screenings that might be happening. Mm. So was, what was the reason behind doing a documentary as well? Both um, so the, the first one... It's interesting, you know, earlier on you were sort of saying, you know, my vision for, for Run Against Violence and seeing where we've got to and all those sorts of things. We didn't really have that. Uh, it's something that has evolved step by step. Uh, so if you had asked me back in 2014, where will we be in 2020? There is no chance mm. <laughs> that I would have um, come up with, you know, where we are. Um, we've really been, I guess, following what works and the impact that, that, that we've seen, you know, what, what actually you know, is, is having an impact. Uh, 
going into the 2014 run about it was some short period beforehand, maybe two weeks or 10 days beforehand, a film crew put their hand up and said, well, this sounds like a really ripping, you know, good story. We need to come out and, and film this. Uh, so I said, yeah, that, that sounds great. Um, that, yeah, at that stage, it was still very much a typical charity run. So we're going out to raise some money, raise a bit of awareness and 12 days and we're done. The thing that happened though, is that while we were out on that run, people started sharing their stories. And as you say, Nicole, you're, you're impacted by Rebecca's story. Um, I was getting, I was not prepared for this. I was getting flooded with those types of stories into my messenger and you know, people sending me texts, emails and all sorts of things on Facebook and, and, every day that went past these stories just built up and built up and built up. And it was the day running into Tamworth and our day in Tamworth that changed the lives of Brad and I forever. And, and, and the crew, the film crew, um, it, it just, you know, again, they were, they, you know, they, they were good men. They um, went out there just to film it because it was going to be something that was quite visually spectacular, had a nice story thread. Um, but they, yeah, they weren't ready for the impact that it was going to have in terms of the flood of stories that would come through and the intensity of those stories. I woke up that morning, I was in a place called Manila, which is about 40 k's outside of Tamworth. And this wonderful, wonderful woman sent me a message and she said she was following the run from her hospital bed. And she was there because of recurring pain in her back. And because at Christmas time, her, she'd tried to leave her partner and her partner had broken her back in the process. Um, and she was constantly having issues with the nerves uh, regrowing and causing her pain. So she was following the journey from her hospital bed um, with the hope that one day she might be able to walk um, something like I was running um, and be able to do some sort of distance. So she was using that as inspiration. That floored me. That, that absolutely rocked me. I got that message at about 4.30 in the morning. And, um, you know, what I would do each day is I'd wake up and I'd swing my feet onto the floor and I would put them down there just getting ready for the pain and bracing myself for the pain and putting my feet on the floor and I'd sit there and read my messages and I read this one and I was I was bawling my eyes out um, one of the crew came in and sat with me to comfort me and then that day as I ran into Tamworth I imagined that her legs were my legs and and we ran that leg together and um, and then we got to um, our destination that day was a, a sports match that was being played um, between two of the Tamworth high schools. It was a white ribbon. They call it the white ribbon cup. It was a game of rugby league that the boys organized everything for. And, um, and, you know, that was a part of their community action for white ribbon. And it was fantastic. They organized a, a beautiful run through and everything else. So the, the visions in the in the documentary iceberg so um i won't go into a huge amount of detail with it but that day um this kid walked up to brad and i um one of the students and he as he approached us he had a quite a nervous twitch and and when he was talking to us he, he was having 
challenges articulating his ideas. Uh, but he was, he, he came up to us and he thanked us for what we were doing and introduced himself. He's the politest kid you're ever going to meet. And then he just matter of fact told us what he'd lived through. Um, and in terms of when he was very, very young, he was physically, mentally and emotionally abused by a parent and that had left him with major trauma. Um, he had been, uh, I guess, um, folded under the wings of the Salvation Army and they've done an incredible job to support him um, through life. And he was saying that um, all he wanted to do in life was to be a social worker so he could help kids like him. And it was to see the bravery, to see the resilience and to firsthand witness what this young boy had had to live through and to see how big his heart was for other people. Brad and I, we couldn't walk away from that. Um, we, we decided that, you know, we have to, if he can do that, we can do so much more. So that's, that's, that's it. That's where Run Against Violence started was on that oval. Thanks to that little boy. Mm. So let's talk about that now. So it's, it all started with that 2014 run. And then I guess it was initially like, as you said, a charity run and raising awareness as well, raising some money. And then you started Run Against Violence. Can you just explain briefly what is Run Against Violence? Um, and then we'll talk about how that morphed into the next run in 2017. Absolutely. So Run Against Violence is a, an awareness campaign. And we use running to engage communities in discussions and conversations about family violence prevention. So we consider ourselves the warm-up act to support services. So on that first run in 2014, when we decided we wanted to do more, we, we spoke to a lot of um, social workers, support workers about the challenges that they had um, in being able to make a difference in their communities. And they said their biggest problem was that whenever they had events or educational uh, you know, events or activities going on, it was always the same people turning up. And they were either people that had been directly affected or one degree of separation from that. Maybe they work in the area or they have family. Mm -hmm. um, but to be able to actually have an impact, we need the entire community working at this. And so we said, well, running is perfect. Running is an enormous community, so we can engage with lots and lots of people. Um, and, yeah, so it's just a super effective tool for for getting that broader community involved and yeah so that's how run against violence was born mm. so and you have done a great job at that i mean i've seen it evolve over the last you know how many years and and to so what are the numbers like this year for example compared to last year i mean you said it's almost doubled how many people yeah, have you got yeah, signed so up for this year's event <laughs> So we're soaring up towards two and a half thousand participants this year. And um, yeah, I know it was so cool. <laughs> I think we'll probably end up sitting around about 2,700, which will be double what uh, the people that participated last year, which is a fantastic result. Super, mm -hmm. super excited about it because we're all volunteers. Um, we do all of this on a volunteer basis. So yeah, we're, we're patching together our spare hours amongst busy lives um, and yeah yeah so it's it's exciting we're again we've got international competitors it's not just um uh you know australian based people and they're people from every aspect of life so whether you know, some people will contribute 
10 metres a day to their, their team total. Others will do hundreds of kilometres. So it's, it's fantastic to see just how inclusive and how expansive um, the, the campaigns become. Yeah, it's great. And where do, like, do the funds raised through the campaign, like through the virtual event, um, do they, do you, do, are they just covering costs or do they go towards um, donations to various groups that deal with family violence? Yeah, so our, our remit, our, our charter is always in prevention. Yep. Uh, so we keep, uh, so the first couple of years Run Against Violence was funded out of our own pocket. So now we've reached a scale where we can, um, you know, it's got its own cash flow and that sort of thing. 50% of the cash flow goes toward Run Against Violence um, to cash flow uh, its activities. Um, so the, the merchandise, and we can talk through why that's really important. Mm. Uh, and also we've got a, a grants program now. So if somebody wants to hold a screening or activities in their local community to build awareness and to engage their local community, we can help seed fund those activities. And then 50% of the money raised goes to a, a program or um, we, we essentially donate um, elsewhere in order to expand existing programs as well love it i love it so we've talked about how run against violence developed um over time from that first run in 2014 and in 2017 you chose to do another run in alignment with your awareness campaign um your online campaign so that was a new thing and what did that look like um for the people that participated and ran alongside you? Where was the run? Where was it held? Where did it go from and to? And why did you choose to do the campaign that year like that and moving forward now? Uh, the run was from Broken Hill to Sydney and this time was 1300 Ks over 19 days. Broken Hill had been brewing in my mind as a great place to focus on since before the 2014 run. I actually tried to incorporate it into the 2014 run, but the, the kilometres were just too high. It was uh, scaring me a bit too much back then. So um, it got left out. But Broken Hill is a fantastic case study because, again, it's a remote community and has uh, a long history of having high rates of domestic-related violence. But also at that time, it was winning awards for the leadership it was showing on addressing those community issues. So that's why I wanted to start in Broken Hill. Mm -hmm. And then it became a case of where to finish it. Mm. And uh, Sydney Opera House <laughs> seemed like a really good idea because, uh, again, another iconic location. But more importantly, what I wanted to do was put focus on the idea that family violence doesn't exist just in remote communities. You know, often we can have these stereotypes in our heads about what sort of families experience violence. And what I wanted to show was that it covers every cross-section of our community, uh, all the different levels of socioeconomic, all the different locations, all the different, different ethnic groups. It is everywhere. Mm. And that's what doing that cross-section of the state from Broken Hill to Sydney gave us the opportunity to, to demonstrate from very remote communities into you know, the densest metropolitan population we've got in Australia. Mm. So that was the purpose of it. 
initially. And then in the research of doing that, I found another piece of data that um, indicated that 1.7 million Australians experience physical violence before the age of 15 years. Physical violence in the context of, of family violence. 1.7 million Australians. It's an enormous number. Mm. And when I then worked out the step count from Broken Hill to Sydney, it worked out at 1.7 million steps. Wow. So, yeah. When you talk about bits coming together, yeah, that you know, the, the, there's little synchronous moments that that blew me away when I did that calculation, um, just how close that was. So it became a step for every one of those people. Mm. And that was called the Steps Together Ultra Marathon. Steps Together Ultra Marathon. The um, the other aspect that that we brought into that event was the virtual challenge. Uh, Again, this was just one of these ideas that popped into my head and, um, and it was about six weeks before we left, maybe a little bit more, um, that I had this idea of, you know, what if we could have people running across the, the course online with me? And so I set about trying to work out how we might make that happen. The technology was the big, the big barrier to making that happen. And, you know, I, I looked around all sorts of platforms and there's a, a couple of, I guess, commercial entities that I approached and asked if we could use their technology and they just weren't interested. But then I was really lucky that somebody knew somebody mm -hmm. and I was putting contact with Travis Island at uh, Run Down Under and he jumped on straight away and donated all the um, coding and development required to make the virtual challenge happen, um, as well as then all the administration. And he's continued to do that for us for three years. It was just, that was the game changer for us was um, his willingness to do that. So teens, people were able to put together groups of 10, so a team of 10, and their goal was to complete the 1300 Ks within the 19 days. So they, as a group of 10, had to beat me across the course. Mm. So I'm glad to say 80% of teams did it. <laughs> and there's no ego involved in that at all, that I actually beat 20% of teams. Um, but, it was, <laughs> but it was very new. Um, I think it was the first time something like that had ever been attempted, uh, particularly, especially over that distance. So but uh, I note that the teams have got a lot smarter <laughs> in their tactics since. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, it was an added incredible dimension. So we had about 2000 people racing me across course uh, so on that 1300 one. 1300 kilometres. That's a lot of kilometres. <laughs> so how did you how did you tackle that? So you've gone from 860 kilometres back here when you were running crazy kilometers in preparation to, as you said, r r averaging like 70 Ks a week and then going out to run 1300 kilometers from Broken Hill to Sydney. How did you prepare for that run in 2017, both physically, obviously you said you did more cross training, but mentally just to get your head around 1300 kilometers. Um, and like, what did it mean to you, though, to actually have this time people running alongside you for that journey, not just running solo by yourself? Great. Yeah, look, I'll let you in on a little bit of a, a secret. When I uh, wrote the 1300 kilometres, I actually knew physically I could already do it. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the big difference between 
2014 version of me and 2017 was that confidence. Um, the self-doubt had largely gone in terms of I knew that the distance was within my reach. Mm -hmm. um, and I also knew that the thing that would bring me undone would be my mindset, not my body. Mm. Um, so I set up um, a, a mental challenge. I wanted to push my mental ability as far as I could, you know, those mental boundaries as much as I could. So I set up this thing called the 15 days of Epic <laughs> and to, to push that boundary. And I uh, went over to Peru in South America and I ran the Lima marathon. Then two days later jumped on um, a bus up to high altitude and did a trek of a thing called the, the Waywash Circuit, which is uh, through a mountain range that uh, there was 12 major passes. All of those are above 4,000 metres and above sea level and I got up to 5,000 metres. As a, as a guide for people that may not have a relationship with the mountains, Everest Base Camp is at 5,300 metres. So that's the sort of level that you, you're trekking at. And I did that solo. Wow. And it's usually done with donkeys and guides and cooks in about 10 to 12 days. I set myself five and a half days to do it solo. So it's really pushing the extremes. And I, I don't have much experience at altitude, so it's a very foreign environment for me. And then I came back from that, and I think it was about three days later, I did a race called the Andes Challenge, which was, again, um, we started at 4,500 metres above sea level, climbed under rope assistance and crampons to 5,300 came back down, then raced using mountain bikes and cycling from that to, and the finish line was in the ocean. So that was all done in 15 days. And a whole other podcast right there. There's <laughs> a whole other podcast. And I had broken myself in so many ways mentally and got back up again and learnt so much about myself that by the time I started at that, that start line, um, it, it, it was not, a, yeah, I was a different woman. Yeah. It's Even not a case of if, do... but when. Even just to do Peru, like that first one, like the solo trek through Peru on your own in the five and a half days, um, like, were you terrified? Like, I would be terrified being out there at, at, at such high altitude in the elements on my own, in the dark at times, I'm sure, or getting dark, hoping you're going to make it to where you had to be the next day um, or at night before it got dark. Like, could you really just briefly touch on that experience? Was there any times during that experience? I mean, I don't know if you can briefly yeah. touch on that. I'm really excited. To yeah, to it, it, it is a bit hard to do briefly and I'm absolutely happy like... to come back and do another podcast because that changed my life. There was yeah. an hour on top of a, a mountain pass and this is where I always ask my mother to put her fingers in her ears. Um, <laughs> it was a pass at 5,000 metres and I got caught in white out conditions on my own. Oh. And, um, and I, I had an anxiety attack mm. and I, because I couldn't find the way back off the mountain. Um, and I was warm, I had food and you know, all those sorts of things. And my campsite was only a couple of kilometers away back down in the valley. Um, but it was the sort of pass that if I picked the wrong way off, I was falling to my death. There was two to 300 meters falls on all sides. Um, and there was one little single trail back down mm. and um, how I dealt with that moment um, has changed, changed me forever and changed the way I go about living. 
So it's uh, yeah, it is a big, big story. <laughs> well, we'll have to we'll schedule that one for another time. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it, it's in fact the heart of or the, the stimulus for my my new passion project, which is called the Go Getters Compass, which is a personal development program. But we, yeah, we'll leave that. We'll park that for now. So yeah, it's I was terrified. Is the short answer at times, and that's when you find out who you really are. Um, not that I'm suggesting people should go put their lives at risk like that. Yeah. It was um, a case of managed risk uh, around that as well. So um, the yeah, but when the altitude sickness kicks in, and like the first night I had, I was curled up around this my my, my camp stove with porridge basically in it for for dinner um just trying to keep warm and i was just stuffed and i experience gets you through in those situations i knew how to well i hadn't been in that specific situation what i do is i piece bits together um to to say okay well i know this bit i know this bit i know this bit okay so what does that now look like as a solution to this problem It doesn't sound that pretty when I'm doing it. It sort of has a few more expletives in amongst it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. But yeah, technically that's what I'm doing. <laughs> wow. So when you yeah. were doing that Steps Together Ultra Marathon, you'd obviously trained up very well then mentally and physically yes. for this new talent. Yep. And I really am excited to interview you again about that, that experience <laughs> now that you've shared that. But there was one particularly particular part in the documentary that I was watching where you were going through the six foot track. And for those that aren't aware, the six foot track runs from um, the Janolan caves right through to the blue mountains and it's quite elevated and it's, I mean, it's absolutely stunning and beautiful, but by that stage you'd had a lot of kilometers in your legs and you had gone from heat to practically a snowstorm (laughs) um or like a you know a really bad weather uh experience and you were also struggling just to put one foot in front of the other at at some of those points during that time did you draw on the the experience from being in nepal during those times and also how did how did you get through feeling like that um in that moment given you were so close i guess to sydney (laughs) um and you weren't going to pull out let's be honest (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we'd climbed up um, from the day beforehand, I'd climbed from Bathurst um, up to Oberon. So yeah, we'd gained elevation quite a bit for the people who are outside um, the region. And it was a few kilometres outside of Oberon where the snow started to hit. Mm-hmm. And we got sleeted on and we'd gone from t-shirts in the morning to to rather cold in the afternoon mm. and um and i went to bed as usual had a good feed in the bed and i got woken up by brad my head crew the next morning and he he's boundless energy this man mm. boundless energy he comes bouncing into the room and uh goes oh you know it's time to get up blah 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 and look it's snowing oh, okay. <laughs> like it, was, it was like some ridiculous sub-zero temperature and the wind was howling Mm. and as we've gone across to um to the six foot track um and really started into the mountains proper it uh yeah the the passes it was just howling and blowing me sideways i had to use walking poles to hold myself upright and uh on top of all that i had compartment syndrome or shin splints through both fronts of my legs and so 
any time that my foot hyperextended, it caused pain to shoot up through the front of my leg. So it was a bit mucky. And um, I had been reduced to walking for quite some time. Running wasn't an option because of the pain. So you just keep going. It's The aim is just keep moving forward and find a way to make that happen. Worry about the next 100 metres, not the next kilometre or the next 50 kilometres or whatever else. Yeah. We had lots of people starting to join us at that stage too as we got closer to Sydney. So a few more familiar faces and that helped. I got to see a lot more of the virtual challenge that was going on online. When we were way out west, there was no mobile coverage or anything and there were long days and so I didn't get to see all of that. So there was all of that. That made a huge difference. But, you know, it was, it was close. You know, I knew I just had this one massive challenge to get across the six-foot track and then I had you know, kind of downhill all the way from there. All downhill except for the uphill bits, of course. But it was, yeah, um, yeah predominantly downhill. And there was really, really good coffee waiting for me at Lura. So that's important. <laughs> it had been a little bit deprived of that out west. So there's lots of lots of things. It was highly motivating time. And that's, again, just trying to draw off the energy of the people around me. I was pretty grumpy, i got to say, because... Um, Everyone else is having a good time but me, uh, at, you know, different parts of that day. And the moods come and go. Anyone that thinks I'm there smiling the whole way, you know, no, it's not the case. No, <laughs> so, but the, the moods do come and go and you just have to be ready to, to ride them out um, rather than get stuck on them. Let them pass like the weather. Did you find it easier that second time around knowing other people were running that alongside you? Um, definitely. I think it, it definitely... It, it, Contributed a really nice dynamic. It it increased the increased the impact of what we could do, and I think that's um, to have people sharing those stories and jumping on board with an idea. It, it's such a wonderful feeling, and most definitely that made increased, like I said, the impact of what we did, but also just made the whole experience so much more fulfilling. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, increased what was possible definitely. Well, it's making people, it makes you realise that what you've created is special and that people are wanting to get alongside and share that awareness. They want to be part of what you've created for a reason and it is making an impact. So people can join up for Run Against Violence um, every year, I'd imagine going forward, it just keeps happening. Um, um, normally the last weekend in August this year, um, it's starting and you know, you can buy singlets, you can um, buy buffs, that sort of stuff. So we will quickly touch on the merchandise side of it. So if they don't participate in the run, they can donate or they can buy a singlet or a buff. And what does that, because I know myself with branding and the impact that has, what does that, what is the impact of the, the singlets and the buffs? They're not just something pretty for people to wear. Of course, they have a purpose. So what is the purpose that you would love people to go on and purchase some of your merchandise what's the reason behind that yeah it's um it's one of those things that shocked me in terms of its simplicity but its strength at the same time like it's i've been around branding you know my whole professional career sort of thing but in a in a subject area like this um it yeah really surprised me and it is a core part of our of our initiative now and our strategy in that what we find is that when people wear the logo, other people walk up and say, 
what's that about? What's, what's run against violence? And then people talk about it. And you'll be amazed how many times those conversations, the person who's asked the question, they goes, oh, you know, this is what I grew up with or this is what I lived through. Mm-hmm. And they just start sharing because they know they're in a safe environment. They know they're, they've got friendly ears to talk to. And sometimes those people have never talked about those experiences. Mm-hmm. And when they're able to talk about that, then they they release the energy of that. And I know it's hard to imagine for people that haven't been around this stuff, but the victims, the people who've experienced violence often carry a lot of shame and, and the kids take responsibility for that. It's, which is, we know standing at a distance, that's, that's nuts. The kids in no way ask for that to happen to them, but they do, they seem to take on this burden of the responsibility Mm. And that can sit with people throughout their lifetime Mm. until they have the chance to release it. And we are creating this incredible, it's simple, but highly, highly safe environment for people to let go of that energy Mm. um, and liberate themselves from that shame and the pain. Mm. But also in that process, we start to learn. So us people who have not been through that, we get to learn lots of things Mm. and we get to learn that yeah this stuff happens to anybody we get to learn how do we support somebody that's going through that and you know we we learn and we grow as a community and we become such better people as a result Mm. and it all starts with a t-shirt it all starts with a logo it all starts with that tiny trigger of a conversation about this is what i'm doing that's right it's it's amazingly powerful yeah the power of those conversations is is extremely important and the connections that come from those conversations. I mean, I can imagine that not only does it connect people who have been in that experience with somebody that may not have been in that experience, but then you just don't know where that's going to lead. You don't know what connections those people have. It could lead from, you know, just community level right up to government level, which is what we'd love to see happen, right? <laughs> All across Australia. So the conversation's the most powerful tool. That's the most important thing. And the logos, the branding, it's opening up conversation, which is so important. So I think you've done a great job with that. <laughs> and that, and that's exactly it, is that, you know, a few things happen. You realise that that person standing next to you is potentially, you know, has lived through these things. Mm-hmm. And so it's no longer a distant issue. It's no longer somebody else's problem because it's right here and it's potentially happened to someone you care about. It also then raises our awareness and recognition of these things. So people quite often talk about the fact that once they've got involved in RAV, they then hear the news stories more. They then see the stuff in the media more and they respond to it. So that's another thing. And that's the momentum that then, as you say, ends up changing government policy Mm. because we as a community stand up and say, this is not good enough. We need to do this better. At the moment, we have a massive shortage of caseworkers with child abuse and um, brave hearts, et cetera, are doing their piece, but they can't create the change unless the community says, no, we need to do better. We need to fund this properly. We need to make sure these kids are safe. Mm -hmm. So that's, you're exactly right. That's that strong connection between whole of community voice and really creating change at a policy level. Mm. 
And that was one of the questions I was going to ask you is, you know, why does it have to be a community response over our own? I mean, obviously an individual response is great, but the power of a community and that collective voice, it's so much more powerful, um, especially at, well, at any level, but especially to talk to the powers that be in government. Um, if we're all on the same page, I don't know, it just, it sends a, a deeper message, a, a more impactful message if, if the whole community is behind it. And, and the fact that, you know, you can see Run Against Violence growing and growing every single year is testament to the fact that communities are getting behind it. And I guess your strategies changed over time um, and the people that you align yourself with um, in terms of your campaigns. Um, and I think, you know, you're making a huge impact. So I'm really excited to see where the 2020 event, uh, how it unfolds and all those conversations that are going to ha be had um, in our broader community, not just in the running community, but people that we brought alongside as well, the journey. And I think that's the most important thing, you know, for people that are listening, if you are taking part, if you want to take part and sign up, um, that not only are you taking part in the event and you're running, but you are having those conversations and you're sharing about why you're doing it. It's, it's so much more impactful than if we're just participating and not sharing. We want everyone to share and talk about the reason behind it. So on top of the run, um, what else can people do to spread and share this awareness um, of your campaign and also support Run Against Violence? Is there other ways that people can support alongside you as a campaign yeah so there's um on our website as well as throughout the campaign we share stories so you, you mentioned rebecca's story that's on our website as well as a collection of others they're fantastic stories to put out into the community and um, and we we're doing uh we've got a, a communication company that's do donated a whole heap of hours to us who's also helping share that um, out in the media. Talking to your local media is really important and we've got a, a media kit there. If you're not confident with doing that sort of thing, we can give you all of that. Mm -hmm. Just to talk about what's going on in your local community and why you're doing that. And it's been really interesting for those communities that have been involved with us for three years now, that the media is asking for those stories. What stories have you got for me this year? And, and each year there's more and more stories to share. So it's fantastic to see the local media come on board. Mm. A really simple thing that again, simple things can sometimes be so effective is the Facebook frame. On, um, on your fa you can put a frame around your Facebook profile pic mm. and we've got that for the first time this year. And that's been brilliant because again, it's like the logo shirts, people put it on their Facebook and then people say, well, what's that about? And um, you know, we've seen, cause I get to see it across you know, different people's profiles and things like that. That's been lovely um, spreading that. And um, so that, you know, there are a few different ways of getting involved. As I said, we've got the REV grants program there. So if you want to have a screening or run some local community activities, we can help out with that. So make sure you just you know, contact us again via the Facebook page yeah. uh, is the ideal way or our, or our website. Um, and if you purely you know have the motivation of wanting to do something but have no idea where to start again just contact us via those channels and we've got plenty of ideas and and they'll help you out as much as we can and i'll put all of those links into the show notes as well to so the website and everything so that people can find all of that information 
but I thought we'd just finish off with some fun. <laughs> so okay, on every good. podcast. <laughs> it um, is a very heavy topic. <laughs> it is a very heavy topic. And I'm sure at times very fun as well. But I think we will um, just finish off with a little bit of fun. Every podcast, I ask our guests five quick questions. We call, call it the RMA Hot Lap. Um, and okay. it's um, just five things about your journey and just running and what you love. Um, so we start off with what is your favorite thing to wear on a run? Oh, favorite thing. Oh, I've got to say my Rev top, don't I? Yes, of course you do. Yes, and my new Rev visor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and you can get them at runagainstviolence.com. <laughs> Runagainstviolence.com. <laughs> That's right. Uh, what is your favorite race fuel? Favorite race fuel. Well, actually, let's oh. just say, what is your favorite thing instead of race fuel for you? I'm going to say, what is the, your most favorite thing on one of these long adventures? We'll call them <laughs> that you've done uh, that you've been desiring to eat. Yeah. So I guess. Um, I I fuel a lot on ginger beer. I love a good ginger beer. But on um, on the Broken Hill to Sydney, my favourite patisserie, my favourite pies, and I'm not a big pie eater. Um, so this is this is a major kudos. Yeah, no, I, I I'm not a big pie eater, but the chicken and peppercorn pie at Lagol Patisserie in Bathurst. <laughs> gets pie of the year and I had a craving for one for they should they should sponsor me after this surely (laughs) I had a craving for one for about 500 kilometers so it was rather special when I got delivered my crew were awful to me I you know I'd been talking about this for days it's like do not do not miss one of those chicken and peppercorn pies (laughs) and so when we passed through Bathurst they they rocked up and said oh no they're all sold out (laughs) Oh no! And they didn't. So I got a bit black and a bit grumpy, and then they handed me one. So (laughs) at least tell me you stopped running for the day when you had the pie. (laughs) That was my morning tea. Oh gosh! um, (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I'm not a traditional pie eater, but these are amazing. So that's crazy. All right, one thing you can't go without on a long adventure. (laughs) Oh, can't go without on a long adventure. Um, gosh, I'm not going to sound like a healthy person here, am I? I really, <laughs> I need my liquid fuel that comes in a, in a bottle with a little red cap on it. <laughs> it's got a red and white label. It, um, yeah, liquid fuel is important to me because my stomach doesn't necessarily like digesting lots of yeah. food. So um, that's what I tend to have. And, you know, ice blocks, icy poles and things like that are always a welcome treat. Yeah. Depending on the weather. <laughs> I love Coke too. Don't worry. It's fine. <laughs> ultra runners all like Coke, really. Yeah. Um, it's such a bad ultra- example. <laughs> true. Um, what's your favorite running moment to date? Oh, goodness You can only me. pick one. My favorite running moment to date. It doesn't have to be a race. Oh, gosh. It can be anything. What was that? Sorry? It doesn't have to be a race. It can be anything. Well, one of your favorites. Yeah, well, Obviously, I have to say, um, crossing the seeing the, the Opera House, crossing the Sydney Harbour Bridge and seeing the Opera House after 1,300 kilometres, mm. that, um, that was... T- actually, no, I'm even going to step back before that. There's this place up in the Blue Mountains where it went worth four. So I'm still, quite, I'm still a couple of days away from the finish line and I came up on the crest of a hill 
and I could see the Sydney Tower, Centre Point Tower, on the horizon, mm. and um, that I, I might have yelled and screamed and whooped a little bit <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of a suburban street that day. <laughs> so that'd have to be, and then obviously actually being down at the Opera House and seeing that, and just seeing all these ravers, um, all these people with Run Against Violence shirts turning up and. And I was just, because you feel so alone, you do feel isolated, you know, you, you kind of live through that sense of isolation and then you see all these people and, um, and that, was, that was obviously, that will live with me forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, they, they'd have to be up there, but I've got a few others too that are bubbling away in my head. <laughs> hard to pick one, hard to pick one. That's yeah, just mean. It is. I'm sorry, it's mean. Everyone says it's mean, but I like that question. It's just mean. Um, and we'll finish off with one word to describe your journey so far. Oh, impossible. Mm. Because I never, ever, ever would have thought that I was capable of doing this stuff. Mm. It it's the impo- it's beyond dreams you know i always say that yeah a greatness is beyond the limitations of our dreams mm. so it's um yeah it's my impossible i'm living my impossible mm. and what you thought was impossible is totally possible you've made it possible you know you're doing an amazing job so keep made it, up. it a reality yeah keep going and thank you for joining us today Kira Lee. i really enjoyed this conversation and i know a lot of people are going to get so much out of it so thanks so much my absolute pleasure and thank you nick for being there from the get-go to support run against violence and and helping the rma community engage with with family violence prevention and i know it is close to your heart you have put your heart and soul into rav and uh, yeah it's hugely appreciated and i hope you get some satisfaction from the the impact that it's been having as well Thank you for joining us for this episode of the RMA podcast. I really enjoyed chatting to Kira Lee about Run Against Violence and the amazing legacy that she has built. Please head to the Run Against Violence website, runagainstviolence.com and check out all the work that they're doing. You can head there and purchase merchandise, sign up next year to Run Against Violence or uh, you can download their documentaries um, as Kirrilly mentioned earlier. This episode ends our two part episodes on family violence that we have been focusing on over these past two weeks and thank you for joining in these conversations. Although they are difficult, they're conversations that need to be had so that we can make a difference in our own communities. On the next episode of the RMA podcast, I'll be speaking to an amazing lady who resides in WA, Michelle Hooper. I met Michelle on Instagram and I followed her profile firstly because she has the most amazing pictures you'll ever see. And she's also a pretty decent runner. And I was noticing that Michelle had been gearing up towards a pretty amazing adventure. And she was going to be trying to get the fastest known time on the Cape to Cape track. Michelle is a single mom of two little girls and she talks about on this podcast her training for this adventure and also how things went on the day that she took part in this amazing feat. 
you'll really love this episode. It goes right into the heart of what every ultra runner's dreams are and also how to get the best out of your life. So I look forward to bringing that podcast to you on the next episode of the RMA podcast. Thank you for joining in on all of our podcast episodes so far. I have had such great feedback from everybody regarding the podcast and what they love about it. And what they really love is that that we're just speaking to everyday women who have inspiring stories and who just jump out of their comfort zone and have a go. If you know someone's story that you think I should share, please get in touch with me. Um, You can email me at runningmumsaustralia at gmail.com or you can shoot me a private message on either my Instagram handle, Nick Bunyan RMA, or on Facebook. Please rate and review this podcast and also make sure that you subscribe and share. Until next time.